It's great to have you all here this morning. Great to welcome back our Kenya team, as Matt mentioned and Tyler mentioned. And it's good to be back here with you to share in this worship service together. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. Yeah, Christmas is upon us. How many people are excited that the season is here? Raise your hand up really high. How many people are glad for it all to be over in a couple weeks and just get on with it? Okay, none of you. Good, good, good. Hoping now we got, we got a few Scrooges there in, in the mix. But it is great to be here. And man, we are excited to, uh, to, to open up this morning with, uh, with the first of just a, a very brief three-week Christmas series called Reclaiming Christmas. We want to reclaim what Jesus intended for us to learn from his birth and from this Christmas story. Now, when I talk about reclaiming, I'm not talking about, you know, like a real militant, you know, side of it. I don't know if when you saw that cover, you thought this was going to be like a culture wars kind of, we need to bring everything back and insist that everybody say Merry Christmas to us and not Happy Holidays and like, you know, boycott and picket and that sort of thing. We're not talking about that. What I'm talking about is some of these incredible values like peace and love and hope over the years have slowly been eroded away as all the rest of the noise of this season has gotten louder and louder and louder. So our challenge to you guys as a church in these next couple of weeks is going to be to really think about these isolated terms that we're going to be talking about. Peace this week, love next week, and hope the week after that. And uh, allow God to do a work in your heart so that you can make this, uh, this Christmas season incredibly significant and worshipful. Hey, Christmas is the best holiday, is it not? Is not Christmas the best? It really is, right? You get Christmas Day, and then you also get an Eve to celebrate as well. So you got Christmas Eve, and then you got Christmas Day. Only one other holiday really has the Eve, and that's the New Year's Eve, right? Which, let's be honest, when you think about that, New Year's Eve is really the more fun than New Year's Day, is it not? Anybody else get completely bored on New Year's Day? It's like you're just sitting around, and unless you're a football fan, there's really not much going on. New Year's Eve is where you're hanging out with friends and fireworks and all kinds of fun stuff, right? But you got Christmas Day and you got Christmas Eve, and you've got several days before that. Some companies take off several days before that. Some schools, you get lots of breaks around that Christmas holiday. For, for some, really, if you think about it, you know, really the whole month of December is, is owned by Christmas. So if you think about it this way, one-twelfth of your existence is spent thinking about being influenced by seeing images of Christmas. So if you live to be 80 years old, you're going to have about six and a half years of your life is going to be spent in December with this as the focus. So it's a lot. It's a lot. It's, it's the grandest holiday in the, in the Christian calendar, the one that we celebrate the most really around the world. Billions and billions of people are, are going to be getting in on it and if you're anything like me, you love, uh, one of the things you love about Christmas is the idea of the traditions, right, when you're growing up. Uh, my family grew up in New Jersey, and there's a few Christians in New Jersey. Not a whole lot, not like down here, not like down south. We're working on that, and there's good people there. But yeah, it is a different culture up there, I'll be honest with you. A very secular culture, and because of that, there's a lot of places open on Christmas Day. And so part of my family's tradition growing up is that we would actually go out for breakfast on Christmas Day. 
We would go to a diner or a Chinese restaurant or someplace like that for Christmas. I know it sounds so crazy. And when my wife and I got married and she came to my house for, uh, for the first Christmas together as a family, it caused a fair amount of tension, if I can be honest, because her family was all making everything and coming down in your PJs and it's warm and, and, and just you're at home and it's just cozy. And we're like, eh, let's go to a diner in New Jersey. You know, not like the most special thing in the world, but that's, that's kind of how we did it. Another tradition that we had growing up is my family, uh, the kids love to sleep in the living room uh, right by the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. Anybody like that? Anybody got that tradition here, right? A few of you, right? Several of you. Any adults sleep out there right now as we speak in front of the Christmas tree? It's romantic. I see a couple of you. Yep, that's great. Tyler, our worship leader, admitted that he did that, uh, which caused me a little bit of concern as a, as a 23-year-old man. No. I'm just kidding. So, but that's what we did, man. We loved it. Like, I can't wait. I want to be the first one up. And, and I just love the lights and I love everything about it. And to this day in our family, we've, uh, we've, we've kept that tradition. And my wife and I usually hang out there and pretend to sleep for about 30 minutes. And we're like, all right, let's sneak back into our own beds. It's kind of what we do. Another tradition that we have is um, we love to go on Christmas Eve out looking at all the lights. What's unique about that is we do that in our PJs. On Christmas Eve. And so we're driving around, and after we see some lights, we then go, proceed to go out for breakfast in our PJs at 11 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve. So if any of you want to join us after the Christmas Eve service, PJs are required. It would be a lot of fun. And no, but we think about traditions, and we love traditions, and we love this idea of Christmas. So much of our existence is focused on that. You got some people that celebrate the half Christmas. You ever meet those people in the middle of summer like, oh, it's halfway to Christmas. But it becomes such a focus. Christmas has all of its own movies, hundreds of them. Most of them very low budget and cheesy Hallmark movies. But then you've got some very good ones, right? Like Elf and It's a Wonderful Life and White Christmas. We watch those and they're on repeat and there's just a warmth that can generally be associated with this time of year that you don't find at other holidays. What other holiday really has their own movies? You don't have Labor Day movies or, or New Year's movies. I mean, maybe you've got Halloween movies. That's true. But there's something different about that, right? You don't grab the grandparents and get the popcorn and everybody snuggle up and turn on the fire to watch a Halloween movie. I mean, maybe your family does and... Uh, suppose that's okay. But there's something different about it, right? At the end of the Halloween movies, you don't, you don't find your eyes welling up with tears as the closing credits are, are there. There's something about the wonder and the feelings that are stirred up in this time of year. And what I really want to encourage you guys to do in these next couple of weeks as we're diving into this series is to re- capture that wonder. As a pastor, as a communicator, sometimes, honestly, it's a little difficult. It's fun to preach Christmas messages, but on the other hand, it can be a little hard because it's like, all right, well, everybody knows the story. So what am I going to do to give more information? It's going to be tough because it's so familiar, but I wanna, what I want to challenge you to do is recapture the wonder. A couple of days ago, I was on my Facebook feed, and, and there's this picture that came up from a friend of mine. His name's Mark, and this is his son, um, Marshall. They're a part of our ministry here, Mark and Sarah, and uh, they just started coming like maybe a year ago. Awesome, awesome young couple, and uh, part of our 
family here at Northwest, and, and this, this showed up in my feed. And I just thought that was so cool because there's Mark um, under the tree with his son and, and they're pointing and they're looking up at all the lights and explaining what it is. And maybe there's some presence around and like it's, it's like you're experiencing the magic and the wonder of this season through a child's eyes. Through a new perspective. Bringing you back to a place where you once were. And that's what I want us to think about here this morning as we dive into the book of Luke chapter 2. I encourage you to turn there. Uh, we won't have that text on the screen. I've got a few other texts that we'll be sharing, um, and I've got those on the screen, but Luke chapter 2 is really where we're going to be spending most of our time. God gave us the account in Luke chapter 2 to prove that Christmas, that first Christmas, that first Christmas Eve, was not tidy and neat and peaceful. Maybe you're feeling all those anxieties stacked one on another with all the plans and all the programs and all the end of the year stuff and all the travel and all the work dinners and everything else and all the presents that you need to get and, and in getting ready to host and whatever else it is. And, and sometimes we look back with a, a certain romantic flair on Christmas Eve and on the cards and in the movies. It looks like everything was just calm and silent. All is calm and all is bright on that beautiful silent night. Just made that little jingle up, kind of mashed, mashed a couple of things together there. But here in Luke chapter 2, we want to talk about, was there really peace? What was really going on? Let's look at it with fresh perspective. Luke chapter 2, here's what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So let's just stop right there for a moment. Hit the pause button for just a moment and really enter into the story and try and figure out what's going on here. Number one, we had a Christmas Eve or Christmas time engagement, right? Do we have any of those represented in the house here this morning? Anybody engaged around Christmas time? Besides my wife and I, okay, a few isolated hands, a middle schooler raised their hand. That's causing concern. But that can be a time, right? It's beautiful, whatever, and that's when engagements take place. Well, here with Mary and Joseph, they were betrothed, it says in Scripture. And that's kind of a unique setup um, 2,000 years ago in the, in the culture of the Jews. It was different here in America. We save up money. We buy an expensive ring. We do some sort of elaborate surprise, hopefully. Some of you experienced this even recently. And we say, will you marry me? Uh, here's the ring. Please take this ring. Put it on. And so then you're engaged. And then a whole new uh, series of stresses come in as you talk about wedding invitations and venues and flowers, et cetera, et cetera, and who you're going to invite and not invite. 2,000 years ago, not so much. There was a betrothal, and basically the parents arranged it depending on how wealthy your parents were. There was a price that was paid for the, the bride to represent how much you were going to value her and honor her. And really all the boy needed to do, the young man needed to do, was pour a glass of wine or grape juice, if they were young, and offer it. And that was his way of saying, will you marry me? Forget the engagement ring. 
all right? Cheap wine, $6.99 at Harris Teeter. That's all you needed back then. And if she took it and if she consumed it, that means, yes, this represents a blood covenant. We are going to be one. We are betrothed. And if she didn't, sorry, see you later. But the idea is this was a legally binding contract. All right, so it was almost like marriage, like by the power given to me by the state of North Carolina, blah, 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 I pronounce you man and wife. It was legally binding just like that, but the marriage wasn't complete yet. Because the, the young man would go back to his father's house and would begin building an additional room. He had to be a carpenter at that point. Even if he had no experience, it didn't matter. He wanted to get married. He knew that only his father could say when the room was ready, this was going to be their room built off of the existing house. And so he would get to work and, and be doing all that. And the father would finally say, yes, it meets my specifications. You may go get your bride. And nobody, there was no telephones, there was no cell phones, no shooting out a text. He would go over to his bride's house. She needed to be ready. And he would grab her, put her over his shoulder, maybe. And that was when the wedding began. There wasn't a six-month countdown. That was just spur of the moment, celebration. She had to be ready. That's a whole other message for a whole other time that's fascinating. But the point is, they were betrothed. They were engaged. There's some stress that could go along with that. We also want to recognize from this passage, they were going back to their hometown. They were traveling. They lived in Nazareth, right? 70 miles away approximately. And yet they had to go back and travel back to Bethlehem. Anybody enjoy traveling at Christmas time? Is that a fun thing to do? You love spending your vacation days sleeping on somebody else's couch in Ohio somewhere? Stress. Not to mention, they didn't have cruise control. They didn't have DVD players in the minivan. It's stressful enough to travel at the holidays, but for Joseph and Mary, it's like, all right, here we go. Well, here's, you know, the donkey, perhaps. Go on, Mary. Let's, uh, here we go. Let me know when you need to stop at the rest stop. 70 miles. Not to mention they're going back to see family in their hometown. Remember, Mary was pregnant at this point. Great with child. Do you think something needs to be said to, along the lines that, you know what? I wonder what people are going to be whispering about me. And the reputation and the scandal of two young people that were not married yet. And yet she was pregnant. Good luck sharing that story at the extended family meal. Undoubtedly, there was going to be shame and tension as they proceeded back to Bethlehem. To make matters worse, do you know what day it was? This Christmas Eve, way back when? It wasn't December 24th. We recognize that. You know what day it was? It was April 15th. It was tax day. Not literally April 15th. It was tax day. That is the whole reason why with this Roman-occupied territory all over, everyone needs to go back to your hometown because you're going to be taxed. Financial stress, financial strain. We know for a fact that Joseph and Mary did not have a lot of money, like a lot of young couples, right? It says in their temple sacrifice, they had to go with the poorest sacrifice, which was a couple of doves. They didn't even have enough money for a lamb. So they had no money, and yet they had to go back to owe money. 
I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know if you've got personal accountants. If April 15th comes and goes without much fanfare, or if you're one of those old school kind of people that's not quite sure, and you're running the post office, trying to pick up the forms and downloading, and it's that day, it's the day, and you know the one post office that's still open until 11 o'clock at night across town, and you're getting everything and signing everything, and you know exactly how long it takes any of those people here. But the point is, it's stressful. And the last piece that we see there that made this not a peaceful evening is that Mary was great with child. You got to wonder here between verse 6 and verse 7 if this wasn't the grandest omission in all of Scripture, right? Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. I think there should have been like some sort of footnote or something in there, like a little asterisk, and then down at the bottom of the Bible, it's like, holy cow, you should have seen the scene that was there in the barn or in the cave that night. You should have heard the screaming and the anguish and everything. I mean, birth is not a pleasant experience for the vast majority of people. And so you can imagine for Mary and Joseph being forced back to their hometown, traveling 70 miles, all the stress of what are people going to think, and I don't know what to do, and we don't have a lot of money, and it's tax day. And add on to that the fact that Joseph was probably feeling like a pretty big doofus at that moment, a pretty big dingus at that moment. To use a term that my kids use a lot. Wait a minute, you didn't make us a reservation? Where's the confirmation number? You didn't let your family know that we were coming? We got to stay here? Are you kidding me? And you can imagine for both of them the biggest prayer that they were undoubtedly praying that night was not, Lord, please provide the money for the tax. We don't have it. It wasn't, Lord, please let us explain to people that you're in this and that we didn't, you know, do anything inappropriate. And God, not, you know, any other prayer except for this one. Oh, Lord, please if there's any night for this baby to come, please don't let it be tonight. And yet, in the orchestration of God, that's when it happened. Without medical personnel around, without baby monitors, without an epidural, that's when it happened. So you can imagine that scene of anxiety and of chaos. And yet, skip down to verse 8. In that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. So maybe this was a Halloween movie after all. And the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And skip down to verse 13. And suddenly there was with them an angel, uh, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there you get that word. That is the declaration. The Savior, Jesus, is come. 
In the midst of political turmoil, in the midst of personal turmoil, in the midst of financial turmoil, in the midst of physical turmoil and emotional turmoil, the angels say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. I want to focus on that word here this morning. And I don't know what you've walked in with here, but I wonder for some, again, who've been around for a while and experienced a lot of Christmases, if sometimes if we're not careful, we let the words and the phrases and the familiar nature of the story fade away and even perhaps become a little bit cynical. And maybe when we talk about joy to the world, unspeakable joy, and we talk about rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, and all these other great things, you wonder if sometimes because of what's going on in our circumstance, it's a little more ho-hum. I don't know if I can buy into this. I'm singing these words, and I'm seeing these words, but I'm not buying it deep down in my soul. And the Christmas season can be more one of anxiety and fear and depression than it is of unspeakable joy. Well, I want you to know here this morning that you're not alone in that. You're not the first person that's thought that. As a matter of fact, I want to share with you a pretty incredible story of a man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Recognize that name? Literature class. He was one of a group of guys that were called the Fireside Poets in the 1800s wrote hundreds, if not thousands, of different works, his most popular one being the, the Ride of Paul Revere, amongst many others, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Well, he was living the dream at this moment. He met a beautiful young lady. Her name was Fanny. He fell in love with Fanny, and he pursued her for seven years, relentlessly, tried to win her over with romance and with flowers and with poetry. She continually resisted until finally after seven years of him trying, she, she succumbed, she gave in, and they got married. It's almost like a biblical story, right? Like with Rachel and Leah or something. He worked so hard for all these years. They got married and she gave him six beautiful children. Here he was working at Harvard University, writing poetry, very successful in tragedy, struck the Longfellow household. One afternoon, his wife was there with her youngest daughter, cutting her hair, and like any good mother who wants to provide you know, memories and, and save things, she had an envelope, and she was cutting the hair and wanted to keep a few of these locks of hair, so put them in an envelope so that they could keep them forever, and she took a candle and put some hot wax on there to seal it, and a gust of wind blew through their house and somehow the long dress that she had on caught on fire. And as she fell to the ground and was rolling around, it wasn't working. The fire was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. She was screaming. The kids were screaming. Henry was in the opposite room just taking a nap. He jumped up, ran in. Here he sees his wife totally engulfed in flames. So he quickly jumps on her, wraps uh, her up in his arms and is trying for everything he's worth to put this out. Grabs a little throw rug, tries to do that. He's getting burned. She's getting burned. She got burned so severely. As a matter of fact, she did not survive the night in front of their children. And Henry actually was so burned on his arms and on his face. He was so burned in intensive care, he couldn't even go to the funeral. And this is a picture of him right now, and he doesn't have a beard because he's a hipster, or that was the cool thing to do back in the mid-1800s. 
He's got a beard because he was so badly burned it was impossibly painful for him to even think about shaving. And so history records that, that this incredible poet all of a sudden went dark. And that very next year, around Christmas, there was nothing in his journal, no entries, nothing. He was depressed, he was angry, and all he had left to hold on to was his family. And a couple years later, his oldest son named Charles said, Father, I want to join the war. The Civil War is happening, and I want to enlist. And his dad didn't want him to, but reluctantly couldn't stop him, and so he joined the war. And sure enough, shortly after that, in a battle, his son was shot right through the shoulder blade, right through the back, nicked his spine in critical condition, not even sure if he was going to live. If he did live, he was probably going to be paralyzed. And it was at this moment, entering into this story, love of his life now gone, oldest son who he loves, critically injured, that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote these words, this Carol called, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play of wild and sweet. The words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. You can almost hear the cynicism in his voice. Look at the second verse. Thought how as the day had come, the belfries or the bell towers of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Listen to this next verse, which by the way is omitted from just about every hymnal. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannons thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The angel's declaration is completely gone because of evil, because of the sounds of war, because of the sounds of anguish and pain in my own heart. It's just not working. And you can sense it in this last verse. He says, and in despair, I bowed my head there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So there's one last verse that we'll mention here at the end, but Isaiah chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, I've got it up here, brings a little bit of clarity to us as we look and dissect our situation that seems hollow. And this word peace that now for him, perhaps for some of you, Joseph and Mary seemed empty and seemed to not be working. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. 600 years earlier, here's what the prophet said. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. No matter what's going on in our culture, in our world, something big is going down. There is going to be salvation, and it's going to be explained to us and foreshadowed for us 600 years before Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2. Look at these verses, uh, starting here in, uh, in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. This is the great light. This is what's going to pierce the darkness. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. Listen to these four things. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace of the increase of this government 
and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Look at this last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What's going to fuel this Messiah? Who is the author of this incredible plan? It says the zeal or the passion of God the Father, the Lord of hosts, will cause this to come to pass. Now what's incredible about Isaiah chapter 9 and how that connects to Luke chapter 2 is that Isaiah chapter 9 is talking about the Messiah talking about the rescuer, talking about salvation. And all of the billions of people on this planet right now that believe in the Old Testament, not just Christians, I'm talking about Muslims, I'm talking about Jewish people, and then many other offshoots that would say they believe in the Old Testament have to wrestle with this verse. Because this is talking about the Messiah, and it says the Messiah is going to be born as a baby, and the Messiah is going to be a son. And then there's four key titles that we've heard and we've sung. And we're going to be singing them on Christmas Eve with Handel's Messiah. That these four phrases so incredibly carry along that are all talking about the same person. Let's think about it. What does it say? What is he called? The Wonderful Counselor. I don't know how you feel about counselors or deep rooted friendships, but isn't it incredible, isn't it great to have somebody who you would consider to be a wonderful counselor? A friend that knows you so deeply and understands your weaknesses and is open and honest enough to share with you what you need to do and give you truth, but will do it in a loving way because they love you and they want the best for you. I'm not talking about an aloof counselor. I'm not talking about just an informational counselor or friends that perhaps you have that are more of a judgmental counselor. Well, here's what you need to do. I'm talking about do you have somebody that is a wonderful counselor? That's one of the titles of who this Messiah will be. He's called the everlasting father. Not a dying father. Not an aloof father. Not a forgetful father. Not a disinterested father. Not an unloving father, but an everlasting father rich in mercy and abounding in love. He's called the Almighty God, not a weak God, but a mighty God. He's called the Prince of Peace. And what's incredible here this morning is in this prophetic passage of Isaiah chapter 9, you see hints and foreshadowings of the Trinity. All three elements of the Trinity here in Isaiah chapter 9 that were fulfilled in who Jesus is. And who God is. You see it? That's the first one. He's called the Wonderful Counselor. Where Jesus talked in, uh, in John chapter 14. And gave us this incredible promise. He said, but the helper. Another word for that is the counselor. The Greek word paraclete. Somebody that comes alongside. Somebody that counsels. Somebody that helps you. Somebody gives you information. Somebody that spurs you on. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Wonderful Counselor. You've got the everlasting Father in there, God the Father. And finally, you've got the Prince of Peace, Jesus. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled. All four of those things are talking about the Messiah. 
And what I want to share with you this morning, no matter where you are in your story, no matter where you are in the, the busyness and the chaos of life, I'm here to tell you this morning that we can reclaim a peace that passes understanding. I don't know what your story is here this morning. Maybe for you this morning, your Christmas is looking really, really shiny. It's, you're doing great. You've already been on Amazon. You've already ordered all your presents. They've come. They're already wrapped. You got the right size. You got the right color. They had it in stock. It's already at your house. It's already under the tree, and you're all over it. Maybe you're not sweating the Christmas meal. You already got it ordered from Harris Teeter, ordering ahead online. It's ready. It's packaged. They bring it out to you. Maybe you got people hired that are going to actually cook the meal for you. You got no worries. You're all set. You are 100% full on ready. Maybe for you, you've had a pretty awesome year. You've had a banner year. Your investments have doubled. You got a huge raise. Maybe you've got well mannered, handsome sons that rise up and call you blessed. Maybe your daughters are dignified and well-behaved and honorable. Maybe they all got raises this year. And maybe your phone's blowing up because they're like, hey, mom, dad, I can't wait to come see you. I can't wait to spend time with you. I can't wait to share with you how thankful and blessed I am that you were my mom and that you were my dad. And you just got back from the doctor and you were handed a clean bill of health. You're as healthy as I've ever seen. Maybe your cars are all running smoothly. Maybe things are looking good and we're, we're happy about that. Merry Christmas to you. That's fantastic. But I sense, even in my own heart, maybe this season is just a little bit crazier than that for some. Maybe for some of you here, you're in a situation that you never even dreamed of. Maybe as you enter into December and you're, you're, this, this day's looming forward and, and you're thinking about all the traditions and the story of your life is just flashing before your eyes and you're, you're leaning forward, not in anticipation, but with anxiety. Maybe this is going to be the first Christmas here for somebody, their first Christmas with cancer. Maybe for some of you here, it's, it's going to be your first Christmas without that person that you love so desperately and that you miss so incredibly much. Maybe for some, it's going to be your first Christmas with that newborn in the house. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be wild. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be tiring. Maybe for some, it's your first Christmas as a married couple sharing these moments together. I know we got a few of those in here. But maybe for others, um, it's one that you're just really not looking forward to. The family situations, the the dysfunction, sitting together and being together after all those years. It's anything but peaceful. You can't imagine how any good can possibly come from it. 
Maybe for some, it's your first Christmas after that person has stepped out of your life and said, you know what, I'm done. I'm walking away. I'm not doing this anymore. It's complicated. Maybe for some, it's you got to do Christmas at several different houses because there's different families involved and it's, and it's kind of a mess. And maybe for some, you just can't wait until it's all over. And for some, maybe you're thinking about already, how can I stock up on the alcohol to help me get through? Christmas, second highest day of alcohol consumption in the year. Followed by New Year's Eve. Following New Year's Eve. But maybe you just need something to dim uh, or to numb the pain because you just can't stand the memories and you can't stand it. You need something to help you cope because of the mess. I'm here to tell you this morning Peace does not happen just in circumstances. I'm not here to promise you that Jesus is just going to come into your life and just give you peace and and make everything okay. Because remember, for Mary and Joseph, their prayer wasn't answered. Circumstances were chaos. For Jesus, even on the cross, when he said, Father, let this cup pass for me, please, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in those final hours, his prayer wasn't answered. We have got a God and a Savior that is transcendent and that is overall and that sees the whole story. And if we, you would have told Joseph and Mary that day, hey, you guys wouldn't believe this, but for the next 2,000 years, there's going to be billions of people that are going to know your name and be celebrating your story. And your likeness, at least what we think maybe you look like, is going to be all over bookshelves. It's going to be on kitchen tables. It's going to be uh, displayed out in, in, in yards in, in Cary, North Carolina. And little kids are going to dress up. And overgrown adults with lots of leg hair are going to be the shepherds. And we're going to replay that moment in your life. You're going to be superstars. They would have never believed it. Jesus entered in to the circumstance. He entered into the chaos. He entered into the mess. And he truly is our peace here this morning. I want to promise you that he has come to us and he's, he's coming to us. He's there with us. He's present. And our prayer is that he wouldn't be forgotten. What man said, what government said, is you're going back to your hometown so that you can be taxed. And what God was saying is, oh no, that's circumstances, but I'm giving a son so that your debt will be paid. So I don't know what you need here this morning. When you're confused, maybe you need that wonderful counselor. When you're weak, maybe you need that almighty God. When you're lonely or when you need to feel love, maybe you need that everlasting Father. And when you're living in chaos and difficulty, maybe you need Jesus to be that Prince of Peace. But our prayer this morning is that he would be the center and that whatever the chaos is, you would recognize that he's been there before. He's handled it. He's experienced it according to the book of Hebrews. And there's one name that is over 
all anxiety, all guilt, all secrets. And his name is Jesus. So man, don't miss out on his peace this season. Don't get so consumed with circumstances that you miss the Savior, the one who's at the center of it all. And I speak for myself and Matt and Brian, our other pastors and our elders and our staff, that man, if we can pray with you, if we can stand with you, if we can stand beside you in this season of difficulty for so many, we want to do that. So let's pray together and just dedicate this morning and this concept and this chaos to our God. And Father, we just thank you for being who you are. Lord, we thank you that you meet us where we are, present circumstances notwithstanding. And Lord, I just pray that you would make us aware, God, that you would open our eyes to look around into this family, into this community, so that, Father, we might be able to share that peace, that love, and that hope with those who are broken. Father, this season is all about you, and we want to bring you to your central place, God, your rightful place. So help us to do that, God, and be pleased as we sing and as we say, we welcome you in the center of our lives. It's in that precious name we pray.